0: the Coaches Rising podcast. I hope you're doing well. And in this podcast I'm going to be speaking with Veronica Olaya Love, who is the CEO of the Newfield Network. And today we're going to be talking about well, it's really a really a beautiful conversation. We're going to be talking about the deepest level of listening that we can bring to our coaching clients and how does Veronica hold the depth of what that can be so we'll talk about how that kind of listening opens up and how it helps us to be able to see the the worlding of our clients the the assumptions that our clients are coming from as they as they are in relationship to us and we'll talk about the way that art has informed the depth of Veronica's transformational work how is the way that she created her artwork, the movements, the form that she used, informed the way she sees her clients. We'll talk about the world at large right now, everything we're going through and the role that coaches can play in bringing out a new kind of learning which could support us in thriving in these times. So it's very rich and I just really appreciated Veronica's sincerity and perceptivity, the distinctions she brings obviously demonstrate the experience and expertise she has as a coach. And so just a few more words about Veronica. Veronica, as I said, she's the CEO of the Newfield Network, an ontological coaching school. She combines over 15 years of experience working in the health field with 14 years of immersion in the ontological coaching domain. I'm reading this off her website that those numbers might be higher now. And she's also one of the core um, program leaders for the Newfield Network Network. And a real lineage holder, her father, Julio Alaya, really um, one of the, how can I say this, dare I say it, grandfathers or the pioneers in the field of coaching is her father. He's been on this podcast much earlier. So I hope you enjoy this. And just to say, if you are listening and you want to join our mailing list and join our community and hear about things that are cool but are not this podcast, you know, other than this podcast, then you can head to coachesrising.com and... Put your name in the sign up box there, and oh, if you feel like sharing this podcast, I would be delighted. I'd love as many coaches to listen to this and benefit from it as possible. All right, let's dive in. Here is the podcast with Veronica Alia Love. Veronica, it's uh, really good to be with you. Actually, Um, how are you doing today?
1: I'm well. I am um, enthused about this conversation and what will unfold between us Mm. and
0: between the dialogue. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of different things that we can talk about today. And um, actually, the first thing I'd like to ask you, it's often a question I start with at the moment, is how are you making sense of what's happening in the world right now? In some ways it's difficult to make sense of it. I get that. Um, but I mean, I, I wonder if you see there's a particular transition that we might be making right now. And, and also on top of that, what role coaches might be being called to play in these times? Mm,
1: yeah. This is a fantastic question. I, I sense that, um, for many, many people, these are particularly challenging times. Um, there's so much, you know, we hear constantly unprecedented change and changes accelerated and a level of complexity. And I think at the heart of it, I think there's a lot of pain showing up for people um, and facing a lot of challenges and um, un- uncertainty as far as how we be with ourselves and how we be with other people. Um, I see so much polarization in the world, and what I call um, a listening crisis, um, which is a w- refers to a lack of willingness and capacity for people to actually deeply listening to one another. And um, you know, I when I was born, um, my I was born in Argentina, and my mother had just and father had just come from Chile to Argentina. And it was the beginning of what was called the Dirty War in 1976. And while my mother was giving birth to me, she um, literally had to push the doctor away from her and was in a fight, like a physical (laughs) pushing away while I was being born. And they were from two different political parties. And so, um, you know, the the doctor was wanting to, to give my mother drugs that she didn't want, right? And so, so I was literally born into a fight, born into a polarization, um, you know, gender differences, power differences, you know, doctor, patient, uh, left, right, all of these polarizations that we see. And fast forward a year and a half later, still in Argentina. My mother, my sister and I were at a bus stop and there was open fire shooting. and my mother was had no idea where the bullets were coming from, and she literally draped her body over my sister and I to protect us. Um, and it was in that moment that she decided she needed to leave the country. and so we we left Argentina. Um, and that's, you know, that's two incidences in my own life. However, in that dirty war, there's an estimate of what nine to thirty thousand, uh, folks that were disappeared, that were, you know, and and so we see the extreme of what happens when people don't listen to each other, when they're not willing to hold each other as legitimate. And so I think for myself and um, also for Julio, who's the president of Newfield, Julio Laya, who's also my father. So there is a, a lineage around really having uh, experience of embodied, um, lack of appreciation and dismissal. And so I think the work that we have committed to is not a, some kind of nice theory or wouldn't it be nice if right? it's very, um, anchored in seeing the profound suffering that humans go through in life and in life journey. And because of that, because of being so familiar with that pain of you know, discrimination, with the pain of um, all of it, of you know, being exiled, all of these factors at play, I think there's an ignition and a commitment to the work that's fueled from recognizing not only the human suffering, but also the extraordinary potential of what can be and seeing how that pain is also able to be mutated and transformed and actually nourish something that is so gorgeous and beautiful and real. And so I think coaching as a profession has the capacity to assist people in living life um, fully and richly and deeply and in creating futures and possibilities that otherwise wouldn't arise. I think coaching is about a new kind of learning and a new kind of orientation to life that invites us to um, a depth and a nuance and an authenticity um, that's extraordinary. So, to me, when I see coaching, I I feel that it's about learning to be human at a very deep level. And therefore, yes, it's about coaching specifically, right, one-on-one or with a team coaching. But the very same capacities that we cultivate as coaches are applicable and can be integrated to leadership, to a multiplicity of professions, to just how we be with our own selves and with our families. So I think the span of, of what we're cultivating is incredible. And I'll pause there because I've said a mouthful.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, that's really beautiful. And I wanna come back to what you just said about coaches, but I just wonder how or if those experiences you had in childhood have shaped you as a transformational practitioner. Do you feel like perhaps they might have brought out certain ways of listening and seeing inside of you?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I remember as a child, I was always very attuned to to pain and to uh, struggles that folks were going through. I remember being very young and very sensitive to um, adult conversation and, and what's happening in my surroundings. I came to the United States when I was... Um, about one and a half, two years old, and um, so was very was very attuned to the fact that we landed somewhere new, right. We my parents didn't speak the language, and we were orienting to a whole new reality. And that meant that I was definitely bicultural and meant that I was very keen on um, noticing that, you know, these two cultures are not the same. And that one what one culture holds as obvious or a given is not, doesn't translate to the other culture. Um, so I was exposed to different, you know, two different languages, different cultures and so forth. And that has had a tremendous imprint in terms of my own development, because I think I um, I, I tune in and I listen to those differences and see Often, what is the benefit of being an outsider? What's the benefit of being on the periphery? What does that vantage point allow for that perhaps people that are more located in the center or taking things for granted don't see? Um, And I think as coaches, when we're in a dialogue, a coaching dialogue, being on the outside, and what I mean by that is just simply not sharing the same perspective as our coachee. Is in and of itself a tremendous advantage, because it allows for new kinds of questions, new kinds of reflections, a different inquiry, and so we break the pattern that is often so steeped in our own perspective. And I think that's the beauty of dialogue. That's the richness of real conversation. Is that suddenly we fall into a whole new world, and it's like you know Alice in Wonderland. What I didn't see that I didn't know that I. You know and and so when we're in dialogue that's when we um that's when i think those magical moments of aha and insight and happen right when our eyes get wide open or jaw drops and, you know there's this moment of discovery um yeah
0: mm. yeah i just kind of like when it's really nice i want to tie together like the you know, the culture, you said, like, there's a lot of polarization right now. And a, I think you said crisis of listening or something like that. And um, then I hear, yeah, about the work we can do with our clients, you know, helping them to become aware of their own, the way they construct their own sense of self and world and how for you being on that outside of the culture, in a sense, allowed you, I'm hearing I might be filling in more than what you said, but to see the culture in a way that was different from people who were just born in the US and, you know, so you're, you're kind of like you don't see the cultural norms and biases and because it's just part of who you are. And and so that kind of has me think about like the 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 real need for this, what you're describing right now in our times, you know, that it seems like we've lost that capacity in some way. Perhaps I'm overreaching, but to, to really... Um, Give each other the space to really to really um, see that we are we, we care about these things, but they are also informed by our own biases or our, our own constructed sense of the way the world is and how we can then put people on the outside you know in a way that that closes down this kind of transformative dialogue that you're talking about. And so I think in a way you've really beautifully spoken to me to to something that's really needed in our times.
1: Yeah, I um, I have this quote that I love. That's actually um, John F. Kennedy said this as he addressed the Irish Parliament in 1963. He said, the problems of the world cannot possibly be solved by skeptics or cynics whose horizons are limited by the obvious realities. And I find this quote exquisite. because what are obvious realities? You know, the this, this sense of, um, that we, every single human I've ever met <laughs> is steeped in some obvious realities. And so you know, I, I love this. I I tell this little vignette sometimes, and I, I, I'm I'm not much of a rule follower. (laughs) So sometimes I twist things a little bit. So I've modified the vignette, but I think it really points to, um, the sense of obvious realities, which is there's this father and, you know, he's maybe in his forties and he's cooking a, turkey right you could say for thanksgiving and he has a little seven-year-old daughter right and he's he's putting the whole turkey together and he cuts off the legs and he puts it in the pan and he, he puts it in the oven to to get baked and the little seven-year-old daughter she's very inquisitive and she says daddy you know why did you cut off the legs of the turkey and he says oh that's just the way you do it but then the question lingers in his mind right? and so he calls his mom and he says, Mom, I'm curious, you know, why did you cut off the turkey legs? And she says, well, that's just the way we, we've always done it. But then the question lingered in her mind and luckily her mother was still alive. So she calls the mom and and the the mom says, the grandmother says, well, we didn't have a pan that was big enough for the whole turkey, right? And it's such a simple story. And you may think, well, I don't even cook turkeys, so why are you telling me a story about turkeys? But the beauty is that we get to see that even our actions that can be as basic as, and as simple as cooking actually arise from an inherited past. And unless we are like the seven-year-old inquisitive daughter and actually check in and wonder, right? We just take things for granted as that's the way we've always done it. That's the way it's it's done. And so we, it's as if, you know, there's a wave, a, a drift, a cultural drift, a wave that whether it's our family lineage, our culture, right, all of these collectives that inform our action, but often we're unconscious or really didn't even think twice about it. So, if it's as basic as cooking, we can apply that same principle to really important fundamental aspects of life, right? How are these obvious realities, these hidden assumptions, these actions that then stem from them occurring in our personal lives, right? What are those obvious realities that are actually at the foundation of how we engage in life every day and within our profession as well, right? Within how how we engage in the workforce or in community or with our families. So the ontological coaching tradition really places um, a strong, um, you know, it illuminates this aspect of what are these assumptions? What are these cultural ways that have informed us that we're often blind to?
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to, I was going to ask you, of course, about ontological coaching um how do you begin to surface that with the clients you work with you know obviously they're coming in with some kind of something's brought them into coaching maybe it's a challenge maybe it's a deep aspiration as well but how would you begin to help surface those those um hidden assumptions or you know ideas about the way reality is
1: yeah It's a big question. And I think part of it has to do with our own orientation as a listener, as a coach. Um, So we spoke about the listening crisis and what happens when we're not listened to. Um, You can think about even a time, you know, what is it like in your own being when you know the person you're speaking to is not really listening right or not just that they're not just that they're not sort of listening they're really not listening to you right it's not going in and what happens in your body what happens in your being when you're not listened to and i've asked this question in many settings and you know, it's a consistent, oh, I, I get outraged. I'm angry. I feel I get hot, right? I, I want to I want to um, demand. Listen, it's a, it's a triggers so much. And so I'm backing up a little from your question to say that mm. that how we listen matters. And the beauty of that is that we can, you know, just the way we can actively choose to not listen, right, which creates and what emerges from that is a particular response. Or response is um, we can also calibrate and refine our listening so we often uh think culturally and, and i'm speaking of the west but also i think globally now there's so many shared cultural assumptions um and of course distinct uh, cultures as well but i think there are certain elements that that are shared in these modern times and so one of them is that, you know, our, our listening, our seeing, our sensing is an objective act, right? We, we see a world that's out there. Um, and so part of what happens is we are biological creatures. And so I like to say, well, if I had a dog snout, right, how would the world show up? I would sniff very different sniffs, right? Perfume would smell different, scents would be different. If I had elephant ears, right? Or elephant feet, I mean, they listen also through the paths of their feet um, and they pick up vibrations. If I did that, if I was capable of that, um, the world that appears, which we would call the ontology, the reality that appears, is radically different. So my biological structure is directly linked to the world that arises my perception is linked to the world that arises. And so with that, we obviously are in human bodies. And yes, there's a certain range in human bodies, but we also share many um, attributes. And so we think, oh, if I see something, I can see within this color range and so forth. Um, And that's true. However, what's amazing is that our capacity to perceive and to sense is directly linked to what matters to us it's directly linked to our consciousness it's directly linked to our heart and to the depth of who we are and i know i'm backing up but i think it's important to give the context to answer your question so i like to talk about three levels of visual perception which is that we can in our day to day we often do what i call ordinary overlooking. <laughs> and this is important because you know we're bombarded with social media we have you know all of this stimuli that's coming to us all the time, and we have this capacity to, you know, if we focus on one thing, the rest goes to bl- gets blurry, right? Like we can look at our finger, and if we just stare at the finger, the finger is in sharp view, but everything around it becomes blurry. So we have this capacity to oversee a lot. Right. Think about when your house is a mess and you're like, oh, I can't see it. I just got to do what I have to do. And you leave your house a mess. Right. So it's useful. And there's also certain limitations to it. We can also do the next level, um, which is where we do superficial looking. And this is more of the exterior. Right, the concrete, like, oh, I see Joel or I see, you know, whoever, Bob or Sam or whoever it is, and I see their exterior. I see the shape of their face, the color of their eyes, right? They're this tall, I can see their exterior. And my sense is that what coaching invites us to do, which is what I think all great artists really do, is that we see deeply. This third level of deeply seeing. Moves us beyond the exterior and allows us to contact that interior world. So that means that when I look at you, right, I don't just see that you're this physical thing. I actually have the capacity to connect with your own interior, you know, what we could call subtle reciprocity. I can have empathy and compassion, and I can. You know, when you shed a tear or when you speak of some difficulty, I can experience in my being sensations and a shared, deep compassion and understanding for what you're speaking about. So, as coaches, for us to see deeply, for us to experience deeply, that's what we're doing as coaches. How do we do that? My sense is that's a practice of presence. It's a practice of coming into our own deepest care and funnily enough, going so deep that we go beyond our isolated notion of self. So if I just think, oh, it's, you know, this is just Veronica speaking to just Joel, um, it's going to be a really small conversation. But if I connect to Joel has this lineage and this cultural history and a world of experiences and Joel is an entire world in and of himself, right? This beautiful portal into life. If I'm present and listening from that bigness of who you are, the beauty of who you are. Then I can also listen to simultaneously, and I think this is the trick, that as coaches, we need to listen on multiple levels and multiple ways at once, and that takes practice. But then I can also attune and listen to what in Joel speaking or in my client speaking, what is the assumption that's underneath all of that? What is the assumed, the given? And if I hold that question and I don't have to come up with the answer, which is beautiful as coaches, it's so great. We don't have to be the expert. We don't have to know it all. Right. But if I hold that inquiry, if I, then that simple orientation to where is my attention already alters the conversation. And so whether I ask, I can directly you know, ask my client, what are you assuming? Right? Or I can check in if I have some idea, right? About, you know, and, and check in with a question. But those are the kinds of things that begin to break what often seems like so solid and so real. And we recognize this tremendous malleability in our own perception and in what we perceive as reality. And I think that that's part of what is so fantastic (laughs) about coaching and about being in a real conversation is you have no idea where it's going to go. You know, ontological coaching is not formulaic, it's not a one, two, three, it's not about control. It's really about being with and being so present and seeing what's emerging and having that listening so wide and so attuned that then those elements that you're speaking of begin to be elicited and arise forth.
0: Well, that was just delicious. That was, and uh, I, I feel in deep, deep alignment with what you're sharing. So um, I, I love this notion that coaches can listen on this level, this deepest level that you're talking about and, and refining their perceptive faculties to be able to perceive their client's on this level. And, but what I love is this distinction of like, what are they assuming, you know, um, not as, um, not as a kind of like something I've got to work out, but more as an, as a kind of like, as a really, as a lens of listening or an attitude of listening, I almost get a sense of, I could tune into my client's kind of sense of worlding, you know, like what, what world are they is like is emerging through them and, then be able to bring that into the conversation. So I just wanna underline that, that that distinction you're making. I think it's, it's really powerful.
1: Mm, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it's a very powerful one because we often don't recognize that we've constructed a world on this foundation and the foundation is invisible to us. And the other piece is that the foundation that we've built this world upon is often not of our own making. And this is key, meaning so I like to make up things. <laughs> they made up a term which is called halonic cognizance, which is very fancy and shishi. And say that time
0: again it's
1: halonic cognizance. Right. And it comes from, you know, Wilbur. I think he took the term from um, Arthur and who I think created the term in 1963 or something like that, but it's a whole on, right? So, whole on being it, recognizing that a part is a part, but it's also a whole, right? And so, we look at that sense of a whole on being a part and simultaneously a whole. And so, what I'm referring to when I say holonic cognizance is that as a coach, we are cognizant, we are aware. That even though the human I'm speaking to in the moment, if it's a one-on-one coaching, looks like just a whole in and of itself, just a person, which they are, they are always part of family, of culture, of nation, of all of these wider concentric collectives. And what's tricky about it is it's invisible, right? I can't see that um, you know I'm part of a Chilean culture. I can't see, so it's kind of like an iceberg where I think 90% or something of icebergs are underwater and we can't see that. And we just see the tip, right? Or the top of the iceberg. And so as humans, it's so easy to think, oh, well, it's just you in this isolated form And culturally, it's so funny, but our collective, the Western collective, the contemporary collective, pushes the sense of individualism and isolation. So when we reflect on anything that's happening, our default mode, where we go to, is it's about me, right? My personal. And then we get into self-blame, self-accusation, what did I do wrong? Right. And that's so constant uh, a pattern that we see in today's world. But if we are situated in holonic cognizance, then we're attuned to, oh, right. This person is speaking and what is speaking through them, their family, their history, their culture. So can we uh, broaden our listening and the conversation to see what happens when we include the collective interior, right? So can Wilbur's four quadrants We look at the interior of our own individual, but we have a shared interior and that shared interior is our culture, which means that we have shared beliefs, which means we have shared narratives, shared stories, but they're a little intangible. And so they're sneaky that way. (laughs) Um, and that's where the tuning our listening to be, uh, to be inclusive of those shared collective spaces is so valuable.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I I don't know if you can answer this, but I'm just curious what that's like for you when you're with somebody and you start to perceive, you know, one of those collective um, you know, um conditioning the collective conditioning, societal conditioning that may be speaking through that person. How does that? How do you start to, you know, t- get a sense of that? What's it like when that's happening for you?
1: Well, again, I want to emphasize that as coaches, we don't have to be uber smart and know everything. Right. <laughs> and so, what's really nice about that is, I think where we do need to be, um, I think where we, where we, how do I want to say this? Where we access brilliance in the conversation is through sourcing the questions from the relational field from the moment. Therefore, if I sense, right, maybe my belly tightens or maybe I have a something that ignites me that says, you know, oh, this, there's some juice here, right? There, this, this is like a juicy spot we might wanna dive into. So I can just check in and say, perhaps I'm inventing, right? Where did you learn that? Right, we, we learn Throughout our entire lives, we learn from our parents, from our siblings, from, you know, all of this. And so many times we don't. We learn um, in a way that that isn't what we traditionally associate with learning, where you go to school and you write things down and maybe you're bored and you have to sit still, right? So mm. we learn all the time. We're absorbing and taking in, we're mammals. We learn through play, right? We're learning all the time. But what happens is we often, aren't we don't have the space to reflect we don't have that it, it doesn't come readily in today's world of slow down
0: mm.
1: right we are pedal to the metal go 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 110 right and so I think one of the biggest gifts of coaching conversation is simply that we take a pause and it's not just luxury and, okay, great. I was able to rest, rest is important. But it, it has to do with pausing long enough to check in so that we can become conscious of, is that go, go, go still connected to my deepest care? Is it of service to my child? Does it still matter to me? I mean, asking these big questions And so my sense is that it's really important for us to allow a question to really land. And it can be this, I often find that it's the simplest questions that open up the biggest doors. Like we don't have, you know, I use the term Holonic cognizance because I think it's fun to come up with something snazzy, but we don't have to use big words or jargon or like, you know, present ourselves in a certain way. My sense is that when we're really in deep connection with our own heart and our own depth and the wholeness of who we are, and really in relation with the wholeness of the human being before us and see their wisdom and their strength and resilience and beauty, that then the question itself is just, it's like a little drop in in the water, right? That has those ripples. So when you ask how, you know, how do we do that, it's often quite simple, if the context is in place. So I think it has a lot to do with setting that context of safety, of care, of of depth, so that that exchange is actually just a simple question, a simple Mm. inquiry.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I like that because I also, it, you know, in a way, like the question is not to elicit a kind of trick that we can copy from what you share, but to get really inside of your ontology or your sensing as you're being with your client and how you're beginning to sense sense those cultural or societal drifts, I think you called them. And and what I like in what I, I think I hear you saying is like, you know, primary to any question is there's an attunement a deep attunement to the client and this deep listening and that the coach has done deep work to be able to to perceive and listen on that level and that the the any interactional question is is coming out of that work that you've done um the the, the sorry the attunement that you have in the moment and so it has a kind of rightness to it or a transmission to it it's not just um oh i thought that i was in my head thinking of the next cool question as you were saying that it's there's a non-strategicness to it and um i want to ask you about like your own path of deep work um but i but i just want to make a comment first which is you know i um one of the so maybe i'm bad it's bad interviewing here but it's like i hear in the way you speak and this moves me to at the moment of we we're one of the transitions we're going through is to um, undo that sense of um, separation and, and hyper individualization that we've landed inside of, and that actually on quite profound levels, if you look in like if you read the latest discoveries in cognitive science, the extended self, you know, it, it's like we're made of our relationships to our literally of our environment and to the people we're with and to these cultural drifts and societal it's very complex and um someone from the east would say hey like my i, I primarily I'm, I'm generalizing here a lot so but they might say I, pri- I primarily source my identity from from being in relationship rather than being an individual and so um I kind of like, I wonder, I'll I'll ask you about your deep work in a moment. I wonder what comes up as I share all that, if anything.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's a beautiful question. I find that if we look at levels of consciousness and how people evolve, we notice that there's patterns of uh, shifting from individual to collective, back to individual, back to collective. And so as we develop both individually and collectively, our orientation shifts, which is funny to say. So what I mean by that is as an individual, as I go through my levels of consciousness and develop, my orientation will shift to identifying more as an individual, as self, right? And, and, and then we'll shift to a collective. At the same time, so we have that happening. At the same time, simultaneously, we have the collective which as the collective develops also orients to the individual, to the collective, to the individual, to the collective. Um, And I'm basing this off of Terry O'Fallon's model. Mm -hmm. So um, so with that, uh, I think it's a natural progression and a natural sway. Um, And so how we orient um, is to look at, you know, as a coach, I think it's important to to look at that wholeness of individual and collective and look at where is my client in this moment? What is the tendency of where they they focus their attention?
0: Mm, yeah. And, go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, please.
1: Okay. I was also just gonna add, as far as you, you know, our being as, as not hyper individual, we often say at Newfield that We become in each other's presence. Meaning that, you know, as you listen, Joel, I'm showing up in a particular way because we're in relation and we're becoming together. If my daughter was here and I was in dialogue with her, I would be becoming in a different way. If my husband, if my work partner, if, right? And so every time that I'm engaging with another human being, it is evoking certain qualities and aspects of who I am to come forth. And that is something that I think is so beautiful because as coaches, when we're in the presence with our client, right? How is the way that we are being, eliciting a certain way of showing up for our client? Um, You know, how often in life Do we be with someone in a space where we're so present and deeply honoring of this human to allow them to speak whatever is necessary for them to articulate and to say? I've been in coaching conversations where the person, it's the first time they've ever dared to say this. What a privilege. What an honor to have that. To have those untold stories be spoken and to to touch humanity in that way because to me it's continuously recognizing that this one person is all humans right that there is that connection point um, and yes we are unique expressions of course and at the same time you know i've i've been leading courses for Maybe almost 20 years, and I've done it in England, in Holland, in uh, Canada, in the U.S., in Peru, in Colombia, in Chile, like many countries. And so, yes, every country and every group has its own flavor, right? Has its own um, quality. At the same time, simultaneously with that uniqueness, is that shared everythingness, right? And they're both present. And it's extraordinary. It's just extraordinary to see. And I think we're living in a time where when we work with one person, we need to be attuned to that collective, that work, because we're also impacting that wholeness. That person is in relation, right, is in a whole community. And so that impact then ripples out, which is lovely
0: therefore for me when i when i hear you say that it's like yeah there there is important work for coaches to be doing right now you know in this sense to be able to um yeah to to honor the wholeness the 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 uniqueness of that person and the collective at the same time um maybe this is a good place for me to ask you about i'm just a bit i just this is an intuitive thing. I wasn't planning on asking you this, but what um, what deep work have you done to refine yourself uh, in the ways we've been talking about? And I can imagine that part of the answer is, yeah, you, it's a practice. You, you know, as a coach, you come back and bring yourself to that person again and again, or to, to people and you you learn more and more, you perceive more and more. So I'm just curious what you might say about that. And also like if there's any practices or a particular I know you're in your, your the ontological lineage, but what what practices have informed you?
1: Sure. Um, gosh, I tend to be a little bit like a hummingbird <laughs> in the sense that I like to go to different fields and different flowers and and see and then you know integrate and bring together, uh, and and I think they inform each other. So. I've been doing art for over a decade. I love to do um, to draw, to paint. Um, I think it dismantles a lot of our a lot of what we think we perceive and helps us to notice that, you know if I'm focused on contours, or if I'm focused on value, or if I'm focused on gesture, each of those orientations will create a completely different um, image. Right. And so and and being in response to the canvas or the mark making, I always forget which book this was, which drives me nuts because i love to give credit to whoever it was. But I was at a bookstore, which I do every once in a while. when I have like a special time to myself. I go to a bookstore and look in the art section and I found this book and I what it was talking about was you observe. You make a mark you observe and then you restate. And I thought that's exactly what life is when we're present to it. When we slow down enough to say and and, and mark it doesn't have to be you know a, like a, with a pencil or or a painting. A mark can be a word. It can be a physical gesture. It could be right the emotion that arises. It's <clears throat> when something happens, right? If I say the word love and I observe, what happened? What happened in my body? What happened in the field? What happened, what changed in your face when you heard it? If I observe and notice and then I restate, this cycle is so incredible. It's so simple. And yet when we slow it down and are attentive it is incredible what we can learn about ourselves and about each other. So this, this the simplicity to notice when someone speaks something, right? We articulate and we think, oh, they're just speaking something. But often if we pause and we say, What happened in your body? What happened in your emotion? Right? And then say it again or change this, right? They can tweak it, and then what happens? So I'm getting a little off your question, but
0: I think no, this is great.
1: Yeah, it's something I love, which is looking at what we call the dynamic coherency, right? So, as a human, we have we're a coherence, we're a wholeness, and it's not static, it's not fixed, it's it's in dynamism, it's moving, it's evolving, it's changing, and we can utilize that when we slow down and when we expand our awareness to see how something is shifting in our own being. So if I make a declaration right or an offer or whatever it is, I can then notice this dynamic coherence and see how it's shifting. And we talk about that dynamic coherence as emotion, as body, as language, and all of that situated within culture and history. So it's it's a multi-dimensional coherence. Um, but the fact that we can slow down enough to see it kind of pop into existence, cause we're, like I said, we're often so fast that we miss so much. Um, so anyway, back to art. <laughs> so I, I, um, practice art, uh, which for me, I love to be in the nonverbal realm and to really, um, be in the sensorial world. And, and be with images and mark making and, and how the body moves as you make marks and all of that. So I love that whole world. And then I also did my master's in acupuncture. So I have a background in Chinese medicine from five elements. So looking and understanding our body um, in terms of you know qualities, in terms of movement, uh, is very important and, and, and I think influences a lot of how I orient to the body. Um, and then I'm a mother, <laughs> I have, a, you know, of course my bias, a beautiful 12 and a half year old daughter, um, and that has been really impactful. I think she's one of my biggest teachers in life. Um, seeing her orientation to the world she 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 orients to the world very differently than i do and um and so i love seeing that like oh that's a possibility i didn't you know i didn't think about that or i wasn't attuned to that so it's kind of fun um and that playfulness and that lightness and i think playfulness and lightness are also really really essential um you know we often take ourselves so seriously and um and we get into these heavy places, you know, and sometimes just that lightness, bringing, you know, coming back to that sense of real joy for what is delicious and exquisite and fun. And um, I think that is something that is um, quite beautiful in life. You know, I think it's easy for us to say, oh, doomsday, and there's so much going on and there is so much going on, and there is a lot of pain, undeniably so. And my sense is that the invitation, which is getting stronger and stronger, is to face that pain, right? How do we, we tend to have patterns that we also inherited, right? I'm gonna avoid it. I'm going to resist it. I'm gonna fight it. I'm just gonna power through it and move beyond. So how do we face that pain Collectively on our own, where I think we're at a place where we need to see our patterns of how we face the darkness, the challenges, and how do we be with the darkness, be with the challenges, and see that, that those moments are also our teachers, right? When we go through a military coup, when we go through um, you know, a really hard day, right? if we hold these as invitations, what is life teaching us? What is life truly teaching us in these moments? We often find that that if we really dive in, if we really dive into it, there is treasure there. And it's so like annoying to say, <laughs> you because know, you're like, dang it. <laughs> um, but there really are. I found time and time again that that as and I've worked with many people in in really you know not not easy situations, but as they face those situations, there is a resilience, there is a courage, there is so much that they tap into that then informs their life in that next phase or that next moment. Um, That is truly admirable.
0: Hmm. I, yeah, yeah. I'm just reflecting on how I, there are times where I feel like I'm, I'm like managing my own developmental process. And um, there are times where the process has me. And, you know, that's when um, these things are happening to me and inside of me that, I feel like uh, fuck. I don't like this. You know, this is um, this is, and I, I think what I'm trying to get to is like, there's often this sense where I've, I've like the part of me that tries to manage my developmental process, is saying like, oh, this stuff's now in the way of me doing that, you know. Whereas actually, this is this stuff isn't in the way. It is It is the way, you know. So so learning to, to not to judge my experience in in that way. You know and I know we all know like um what we resist persists all these kind of but but right to yeah to begin to to develop that the the art of of like welcoming these life experiences not not to pathologize them I think you know as being in the way of our process and I, I just want to say I'm really touched when you talk about art because um, it's often I have people on this podcast who you know, maybe they I don't know if they come from like a corporate background or academic background. And I don't know if you do as well, but I, um, I came into my coaching through, through being an artist. So I was a, I was a painter and a DJ. And I also, I, I find, um, there was profound learnings and a thread that runs through the brilliance that I am as a coach and the brilliance that I had as an artist and a DJ, which was, you know, um, and and i guess why i'm sharing this is because i think something you said is really important about like as coaches that we we cultivate access to non-conceptual realms of of perceiving and, and knowledge you know so um and that's what i hear you talk about you know like these these forms the way of like relating to form and movement as it comes into being as i that's what i was doing as a as an artist i would I would. I, I was tuning into the sense of emergence and and vibrancy in and potential as it came into being. As I was, as I was constructing a, an installation, and the same thing as a DJ. As I was playing music, it was like holding a container for, for, for like um, and a relationship to the crowd that would allow for for you know um, a state, a collective state, to come into being, and so you know like whilst that you and me have our own unique you know kind of form of that I think it's something that's that's relate relearnable for other coaches you know that yeah that we actually behooves us to 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 develop these non-conceptual modes of perception Mm. so
1: absolutely I um I think it's important to expand our our, our understanding of intelligence beyond. Um, I think it's uh, Guy Clayton. I think he calls it the D mode, right? The analytic, the abstraction, and to expand and recognize that intelligence is in our entire being—our bones, our skin, all all of it—is intelligence, and it's all working together. And so that not just allowance or permission, but the full integration of um, these, you know, other, quote, other forms of intelligence, I think it serves us so well. Because a lot of times when we face our darkest hour, when we face our friction that we're hitting over and over again, it's not um, rationality that's gonna win the day. <laughs> it's so often, um, you know, the pain point is kind of what what can bring a client to the door, and as coaches, we often actually invite the client into a bigger breakdown, right? Because that pain point is often connected to a much bigger pattern in life. And so I think if we just remain in the rational side, we, just like anything, it has its limitations, but when we expand to include the intuitive, the somatic, the emotional, when we expand to allow any facet that wants to come through, when we have that agility to call forth, all of it to be in the service of whomever we're in dialogue with, um, that is, I think, when when the unexpected happens, when there's finally a break. You know, So I was just working with a group of students not too long ago in an advanced course. And, you know, one of them's like, Veronica, you you always have us play these weird games, you know, these strange exercises. And they're like, but then you know it opens up this whole thing so it's so funny because you see in the beginning there's this resistance or hesitation because it's out of the ordinary it's not just within the rational game right the invitation is to stretch and expand and so in the beginning it's like what do you mean do x right but then after they're like what that was so strange all these things happened right and then there's this often a smile and a delight about what they've discovered that seemed so easy or that seemed so different, um, which is always fun for me to see that in a cohort, you know, in a collective. And then there was something else you referred to about, you know, being a DJ and and tuning into what is that song that's really going to, you know, like that really fits this moment? Um, I find that, you know, in our in our core program, we um, You know, we've been speaking about the individual and the collective. And what I think is so amazing is that when we're in a collective where there's enough safety and enough holding that we can be witnessed in those layers and levels of depth in our own being, that what begins to happen is that it's like um, it catapults us to a different kind of learning because it shatters this illusion of the individual oh it's just my little pain and my little journey and my little thing into this awareness of oh my goodness like i've heard you know a woman from india speak about her challenge and then uh, you know here's this man from england and then here's this person from peru and suddenly there's this moment where it's like how is it that i can relate to each human from all these different countries and can have I often say it's like you know the the Grinch whose heart grew three sizes. It, it is. It's like that happens in our programs. It's so amazing. Compassion and empathy and this. It's it's a learning that isn't just rational. It's a learning that is emotional. It's a learning that is in our bodies. It's embodied understanding and care. What happens when more and more humans actually? notice the depth of each person and listen deeply and care and see that connection and that's what happens over and over again and i'm consistently in awe at human capacity for dare i say love for love
0: Mm -hmm. you 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 made uh, yeah (laughs) um do you think the collective is becoming more important than the individual perhaps like or or more should i say more potent than the individual like collective working with groups collectives rather than one on one you
1: no know, i I think there's a necessity for both i think this you know we i think you i think they're they're different opportunities and i think both i think they complement each other and and they're they it's useful to have them both occurring because um, in the collective space, I think like I said, I, it aside from being able to connect with uh, you know people from all over, there's also an awareness that it's not just about like one per you know, I think our traditional understanding of learning is one person teaches you information, you memorize it, you take a test, and then you write this this kind of understanding of learning. but in a collective space where it isn't about each person has to pass their test on their own. When there's a a different kind of learning, you're eliciting the brilliance of everyone and you you harvest this wisdom that is so vast and so big. And um, so I think it's essential in today's world that we have these collective spaces for, for deepening and cultivation. And I think it's also important to do the one-on-one work because I think that allows for other kinds of dialogues and conversations and integration in our own bodies that is also essential.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I actually would like to... You said about you being a hummingbird and um, moving around. I just wondered if there had been any... I don't know if it's like a book or a, um, a teacher or anything that's kind of sparked you in the last months or years that, you know, you'd like to speak mm-hmm. about. My
1: goodness, there's so many uh, people and experiences that have influenced me. I've done yoga for about 30 years. I did my undergraduate and, Uh, cultural anthropology and what was then called women's studies and I I think I mentioned that I did my master's in acupuncture and had a practice for many years and so all of those aspects of uh, you know education and background have influenced me and then I think one of the biggest influences in my life has really been Julio Olaya who has considered one of the you know essential people in in the coach in coaching and you did a podcast with him uh, a while ago and I worked with him we've been co-facilitating for about almost 20 years and he's also happens to be my father so from a really young age i uh was influenced by him you know i remember sitting on his lap and reading books like umberto maturana Um, who's a Chilean biologist and who actually died, um, I believe, in May of of this year. Um, And, you know, my father always gave me books like Ken Wilber and, you know, all these philosophers and great thinkers and incredible human beings. And so I feel really grateful that I was really nourished in that way from a young age. I think that is part of what was so beautiful about today's world is that we can access so many views, so many worldviews, so many perspectives. I um, honestly just took a class. There's this amazing um, art collective, I think it's based in Spain. It's called the Art Digger Lab. And I just took a course with them. And there's an artist named Alex Kaminsky. I might be mispronouncing his name, he's Russian. But he did an incredible lecture where he talked about uh, Diebenkorn's notes that were found after he had passed. And there are these little notes. There's, I think there's 10 statements that he makes. And it, you know, it's kind of, to me, it was kind of this like cryptic notes about the wisdom of Diebenkorn. And um, Diebenkorn is an artist um from the 60s for those of you that don't know but he and i'm going to paraphrase but one of the things he talked about that i just was like yes i'm so happy you're saying this was he spoke about how when were, when were, so he, he, invite, he said, you know, and these were for himself. So he wasn't doing it for his public. It was his own kind of nuggets that he had gained from doing art over the years. And one of them was search, you know, so he was encouraging himself to keep searching and to, to all, so how did it go exactly? It's to search and then to, to enjoy whatever it is that you actually find. So what, what Alex was talking about was, so if I'm searching for my glasses and I come across a cup of delicious coffee, I might as well enjoy my coffee, right? And I thought about that in relationship to coaching and I thought, this is so exquisite. I feel like often we kind of get very rigid about you know, structure and so forth. Where's the conversation? What's the arc? And we neglect to notice all those little moments of the nuggets that we find along the way. Um, and to allow ourselves to be surprised by the abundance that life gives us in such unexpected ways, and so yeah, I really enjoyed that piece.
0: Mm. I like I like the way you're finding these translations from you know from people the way they speak about art, and um, I actually you know I have some clients I work with where. We just meet and do um kind of i call it unfolding work you know where we work in presence we've done we've done the arc and now we're just meeting to kind of keep refining presence work and so um there's a freedom from having to hold the the arc you know and there's sometimes there's some cons that come with that but there there's a real freedom in just being able to to follow like what what is it that's just emerging right now as we meet you know and connect to what's happening in your life or even just what's here right now as we're in connection and have the freedom from having to sometimes, you know, tie, tie things back to that arc in a way. you would be beholden to the arc. And of course, we want to serve people with why they came into coaching and respect that. But um, that's what came up for me as I shared. And um, I want to ask, like, I know we've not got long left, but I just I want to, one last question that comes up for me. is like, why how could I phrase this, like, what is it that's moving you in your life and the mission you're on? Like, w- you know, like, I don't know if you can speak into that, the, 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 the impact you want to have in the world or the transformation you would like to bring into the world.
1: Mm. I think there's, you know, if I was to say it as simply as possible, I think it has to do with with dropping into a place of, of compassion for self and for others, and also for, for depth. I think just as we were speaking about before, like I think, you know, rational understanding only takes us so far. And this this new conception of learning, where we integrate all of these different aspects. Where we can bring forth intuition, where we can bring forth the wisdom of the body, where we bring forth um, emotional understanding, <clears throat> which is something we haven't talked about at all, but it's a whole other facet. And so, what I find is, I think it comes down to having people who have access to this new kind of learning, to this ontological tradition in order to live a really good life in order to to deepen their own richness of their life the quality of living and to really generate um the world that we want to generate i think i think it's undeniable that people can say and you know in today's world it's not it, I don't think it's, it's what we want to leave for our children. I don't think it's what we want the next generations to inherit. And so it's clear that the, the, the ways, the tools we've had, the techniques we've done, they're insufficient to meet today what we need to do. And so for me, it's about having more and more people really cultivate themselves, their capacities, so that they can contribute, so that they can contribute to the collective, so that they can be generous and give in these ways where we support each other um, to collaborate, to engage, to, and I think so much is possible. I mean, there's so many, you know, things that we see that, that are amazing. I mean, look at coaches rising, you know, it's beautiful in terms of bringing people you know, from different backgrounds, from different traditions, and enter into conversation. And it's beautiful to see what happens, you know? And so to me, it's it's about that. It's about, um, it's about really enriching people, training people, so that they ha- then have it and can keep bringing it forward into the world. Yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Well, yeah. Um... I want to wish you the best with that because uh, we we need that you know I'm right there with you and I, I actually want to um ask you about where we can find out more about Newfield I, for me it's always one of the coaching schools when people ask me which I, I I get a lot like where would you recommend to go it's always in one of the top three I always recommend so you know I, I think you guys are doing brilliant work and um you know, um, it's it's really depth work. You know, that that's what you take a stand for, and so yeah, I'd love for people to know more about where they can find out about what you guys are up to.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, so it's newfieldnetwork dot com, and we've been doing this work for over thirty years, and we provide it's a about eight month program. And the first half is really oriented to this personal work that we've been talking about. It's, you know, really deeply reflecting and understanding on all these different levels about how we're showing up in life and having support, you know, with a mentor coach, with a collective, so one-on-one and collective work. And then the second half is really about um, taking those, those capacities and engaging with other people. So how do you take it from your own work and then be in relation with with others? And we have lots of um, coaches that actually come from other schools that want the ontological flavor, that want that kind of depth. So um, yeah, so even for folks who have coach training, they they come and explore with us as well. So newfieldnetwork.com.
0: Great. Thanks, Veronica.
1: Thank you so much, Joel. It's been such a pleasure to be with you.
0: Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.